We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark's 6th chapter. We're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark and seeing a representation of the Savior through Peter's eyes penned by Mark in a way that pulls us to see dimensions of the gospel, shades and shadows of the early ministry of these disciples that are so instructive to us. Mark chapter 6. We have a rather large section, but I want to read that for us so it's all on our mind. Beginning in verse 14. King Herod heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he's Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and John had John arrested in, and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed and used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask For whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent... Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought back his head and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Let me start by giving you a little bit of perspective on preaching and on something we cover over and over in preaching class. Uh, I've, I've thought about this for years and tried to illustrate it as best I can. 
I want you to imagine a crown, if you will. Uh, There's a crown that has many jewels and rubies and emeralds all around it. It's bejeweled in the most spectacular fashion. But on the front and in the middle of this crown is a giant diadem 10 times the size of any other jewel. No one who would observe this crown and admire the crown in all of its splendor and beauty would miss that primary jewel on the front of the crown as the main thing to be observed on the crown. It does not mean, though, that there are not other smaller jewels that are significant and have meaning around the rest of the crown, but it's not the main jewel on the crown. When you come to study a passage, A passage is much like that crown. There's a main jewel, the author's intent, his willed purpose to understand about that text. And that's what we have to find. That's the grand prize of all hermeneutics. What did the author mean by what he wrote to the original audience? But that doesn't mean there's not a lot of collateral jewels that are true in the passage. An example I like to use is Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 where he, he uh, is um, uh, the great defeater of temptation. Remember Satan comes and offers him uh, three possible temptations to get him to sin. He defeats all of them. And I've heard that passage many times preached as here's how to uh, uh, conquer sin. Do what Jesus did. Use Deuteronomy. Use scripture. Resist. That's all true. But do you think Matthew is writing his gospel and said, okay, chapter one, lineage, chapter, uh, chapter one, the, the birth narrative, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. Well, they probably need some practical application, so I'm gonna tell them how to fight sin. No, that's true. It's a collateral jewel. It's a smaller jewel on the passage, but the main point of that is to say, Jesus didn't sin when he was tempted. You understand the the difference? That's the main jewel. That's the main point of that passage. Even though there's a lot of things true around the, the crown of that passage, this passage is one of those passages. There's a main purpose and a main point, but so many lessons, a few of which we're gonna note as we walk through, that just scream for application and imply things for our lives. Mark 6 contains another, this sounds so unscholarly, but it's what scholars call it, Markin Sandwich. Or it's called bracketing, where, where Mark begins to tell a story, or he, he makes a point, then he, before finishing the point, tells a story in between, and then finishes the main point or the main story. The bracket, the first part of the bracket is the sending out of the 12 that we looked at last time. He sends the 12 out on their first missionary journey, their first preaching uh, uh, tour, and, and back, back down in verse 30, they come back and relate to him what they had done. That's really important. He sends them out and in verse 30, they come back and give a report. In the middle of Mark telling that important narrative, he sticks this thing about Herod in the middle. Why? Why? Why would he put this in the middle of this going, preaching, coming, giving a report? Well, this first part of the bracket in the sending shows the mandate of disciples to go and share the gospel. The last bracket in the coming shows the importance of faithfulness and accountability and even sharing the goodness of God. And then there's John the Baptist's death right in the middle. Oh, I think it does have a prefiguring of the death of Jesus. But I think even more the way Mark uses it it has a prefiguring of the persecution of believers. It seems that the main jewel of this passage is about Christ's followers, those who believe the gospel will experience fates perhaps as severe and similar as John the Baptist. The disciples are sent, the disciples return, the disciples report, And in the middle, we find this paranoia of Herod Antipas and the death of John the baptizer. It's really a picture of the cost of discipleship. As Mark is writing to probably Greek readers, maybe even Roman readers, he wants to make sure that we know, hey, there's sending, you better be faithful. There's reporting, you better have have fellowship. 
but there's a high price and a high cost. I believe Mark includes this passage when he does and the way he does to equip us as readers. He's preparing us for persecution. And at the core of his argument is to tell us why believers in the gospel and the good news of God are persecuted. Now let's walk through this. We're gonna see these main structural points in the passage, but we'll also note some collateral jewels and lessons as we go along. (coughs) Let's find together, make note of three reasons believers are persecuted. Three reasons Christians, three reasons believers experience persecution. The first is in verses 14 to 16. Persecutors misunderstand the power and person of Jesus. Persecutors misunderstand the power and person of Jesus. Look at verse 14. And King Herod, stop right there. First thing we need to do is answer the question, hang on, which King Herod? There are at least six of them in the New Testament and at least 15 that we can identify in history. All who went by the title or the name Herod. Now what I wanna do is give you just a very brief sketch. This is so utterly confusing, even in the history books. Even Josephus talks about the confusion that existed in naming which Herod was, was reigning where at which time. Six of them in the New Testament. First, there's Herod the Great. That's the Herod of the Christmas story. That's the one that we find in the the very beginning. Then his son, there's Herod Archelaus. He was the one who was ruling two years later after his father had died. And Joseph is in uh, with Mary and baby Jesus in Egypt. And he's warned not to come back to uh, uh, the uh, area around Bethlehem because it was dangerous. Herod was on the throne and he was, remember uh, Rachel's weeping? He was killing babies to try to make sure that he killed the, the Christ child. He was the one who tried to trick the Magi. Then there's Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was a grandson who was ruling over only part from Tiberias up in the north over the Galilee area. That's the Herod of our story, Herod Antipas. Then there's Herod Philip, who's a brother who ruled northeast of Galilee. And he's the one who was married to Herodias, who's the wife who Antipas takes. Just keep following Later on in the book of Acts, you'll find Herod Agrippa I. He was the one who was eaten by worms. And then finally, you find Herod Agrippa at the trial of Paul in Caesarea. He's the one who said, I'm interested in hearing you some more. Now, that's important because when we say in Herod, we have to say, which Herod? This is Herod Antipas. He was the one over the precinct of, of Galilee, over Nazareth, the whole area that Jesus was doing his ministry and where John the Baptist had preached predominantly. That's where he is the, the ruler, the governor. Verse 14, and King Herod Antipas. And Antipas, the Greek says heard. If you go back to the uh, previous section, the 12 are sent out to preach the good news, preach the gospel. The Greek says, and Herod heard. The idea is he probably heard about Jesus through the preaching of the 12 who probably had his ear or they heard of his, he heard of their preaching. And then we find out something about Jesus. His name had become well known. Jesus' reputation is growing, it's spreading. Herod could not ignore the fact that John and Jesus' message, by the way, was identical. Mark's already told us that John the Baptist preached the gospel and that Jesus preached the gospel. This isn't the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the final form of the gospel. This is the the idea that good news has come and repentance is the way to respond to the good news of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The fame of Jesus is spreading fast. 
We know that the reputation of Jesus has made it all the way from Galilee, 100 miles south to the, uh, in the north of Israel to the south in Jerusalem. Temple officials have been sent from Jerusalem to come and investigate this Nazarene who's preaching around the northern lake, around Capernaum. Rumors had also reached Herod, who ruled over Galilee and his officials, but they misunderstood the power and the person of Jesus. The rumors about Jesus would continue on and on. What were the rumors? What were they saying about Jesus? Well, we find out. People were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that's why he has these miraculous powers. Now, that's interesting to me because the people who knew John the Baptist and knew Jesus and knew that they were cousins, and they were, would have seen them perhaps together. John the Baptist had baptized Jesus, so the idea that he somehow reincarnated into John is fantastical at best. Others were saying, it's Elijah. Elijah has come back from the dead. Now, before you start getting into all the theories of reincarnation, the point here is the preaching of John, the preaching of Jesus now, is so profound that they thought it must be a major prophet come back from the grave. Others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Been 400 years since Israel had experienced a national prophet. And now they're saying, well, maybe Jesus is like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He's a new prophet. These are the common rumors of the day. Later, by the way, we'll we'll come back to this in Mark chapter eight. He takes his men on a retreat up north of the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi, and they have this exchange. Look over at Mark chapter eight, verse 27. (laughs) Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, guys, who do people say I am? The disciples answered, they told him, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. Pretty consistent, isn't it? And he continued to question them. I tell you what, I have another question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Why in the world did he tell, no, tell them to tell no one about him? Because the message wasn't finished yet. He hadn't died and risen from the grave. Herod knew of these rumors, but his fear and his conscience led him to choose one of the rumors. Which one? Jesus is John the Baptist. Why was that pressing on his mind? Verse 16. When Herod heard of Jesus, heard of it, He kept saying, oh no, John whom I beheaded has risen. I think it's interesting and maybe a bit ironic that Herod had a higher opinion of Jesus than his own relatives did. He knew there was something special about this man. But Herod is scared. Antipas is, is, is remorseful for what he had done to John which leads Mark to really give an extended footnote, which functions as just a paradigmatic lesson, an example for them all to look back. Those who preach the gospel are gonna face a gauntlet and persecution. If you're watching this as a movie, there's a flashback. The scene breaks away and Mark says, let me tell you what happened. And when he tells them, we come to our second reason that believers are persecuted. First of all, they misunderstand the power and the person of Jesus. Is this John? Is this Elijah? Who is this? They don't know who he is. They don't know how he could do the things he did. Secondly, persecutors retaliate against the power and presence of conviction. Persecutors retaliate against the power and presence of conviction, being convicted over sin. As the story of the disciples in the first missionary outing describes the rumor mill, Mark does something that good writers do, good screenwriters do, good storytellers do. He jumps to a flashback. 
He says, Herod thought that Jesus could be John the Baptist. And then in verse 17, we find this word for. And now we have this extended long flashback about the death of John the Baptist. Verse 17, for Herod himself, the Greek is emphatic, he was responsible, had sent and had John arrested, bound in prison. Why? On account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Is that not a conspicuous verse? He stole his brother's wife. He had the power and he did it. Now, what we're about to consider is potentially confusing, but it's more sinful than confusing. Mark gives us the abbreviated version that's really all you need to know and remember. Matthew tells us that Herod arrested uh, John because of Herodias and intended to put him to death because John was publicly preaching against, as we'll see in the next verse, this marriage. (laughs) Herodias had was the unlawful wife of Herod Antipas. She was formerly the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. And as the granddaughter of Herod the Great, Herodias herself was a niece to both of her husbands. I was gonna show you a family tree. It it would just be, it's one trunk. It's pretty bad. (laughs) Consequently, this is what you need to know. Verse 18, For John had been saying to Herod, the the power of the Greek here is he said it over and over and over. He was constantly bringing this up. Maybe to Herod, we don't know that. But no doubt in his public sermons, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Violates all the Levitical standards, violates the, the Ten Commandments. Now, verse 18 is awesome. John is bold, brave, brash, provocative, unafraid. We don't know whether John had met Herod face to face, but he kept confronting him openly and publicly, exposing Herod's sin, and that was the issue. Now, it's just too tempting. Can you just turn back over for a moment to Matthew chapter three? (coughs) Matthew three. Just a little insight into John the Baptist and his preaching. Um, I was gonna pick it up in verse seven. Let's get a running start. John three, one. In those days, John the Baptist, Matthew three, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a... Nice, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life message, isn't it? Repent. Turn from your sins. That's what that means. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He is the preparer, the forerunner to Jesus. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. This is a man's man. I just, every time I see, you know, um, uh, grasshoppers or um, uh, cicadas, I always think of John the Baptist thinking, what a treat. (laughs) I can just see him with a vat of honey. He grabs one of these things, dips it in there, throws it down. He's got nutrition for the day. Maybe we should try that as a church outing. Then Jerusalem was going out to him. Remember, he's in the wilderness. All Judea and all the districts around the Jordan, he's popular, they're coming out the wilderness to see him. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. That's critical. He was saying, repent. They confessed. He baptized them as a way to identify with this new movement of God. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, there's room in the water for you. It's nice and warm. Oh, how I'd love for you to be on our team. What an influence you could be for the gospel. No, this is what he said. 
you brood of vipers, you snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, you think you're gonna be saved from what God's righteous judgment is on you because you're coming to me? There's no repentance at all. How do we know that? Because he says, verse eight, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have our father uh, Abraham, for, I, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His, that's Jesus, winnowing, winnowing fork is in hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I'll show you that just to see what kind of preacher John was. Do you think he had any trouble preaching against Herod Antipas's wicked, openly rebellious marriage? Well, he did. In verse 19, back to Mark 6, his wife, Herodias, there's a reason her name is Herod with a feminine, and that's, it's just too long. It's, it's all in the family. Let's just say that. So remember, she's a niece. Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist, verse 19, and wanted to put him to death and could not. Why? She was exposed in her sin. And instead of repenting, she was like this, this brood of vipers, these snakes that John the Baptist identified in the Pharisees and Sadducees. She wasn't gonna have anything to do with repenting. But she wanted the voice that called her sin out silenced. It's not hard to imagine that Herodias was persistently in Herod's ear about John. Last says she could not do so because Herod Antipas was keeping John alive. We're gonna find out in a moment. He didn't wanna kill him. But John had embarrassed her. John had humili humiliated her. John had trolled her spiritually in our common vernacular. And she wanted her husband Antipas to kill him, to take him out. This led her to want to retaliate against him. Now, collateral jewel of this crown, okay? Very instructive for us. Mark wants us to be forewarned when you're serious about sin, when you call sin, sin, when you confront others in sin, be forewarned. When you call, call people to repent, the message threatens the sin that people love and enjoy, especially if it becomes public. And if you do, and when we do, you need to be ready for the pushback. Now, does this mean that we need to go around the hallways of work and tell everyone every sin we know of everybody? No, 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 not at all. This was a public sin that was nationally known. I think you deal with sin commensurate to the extent to which it's known. Be ready when you preach the power and presence of conviction comes. When you preach, people become convicted that will woo them to forgiveness in the gospel or it will cause them to hate you. How bad was this hatred so bad that she wanted John dead? Now that brings us to the bulk of the story and our third reason that believers are persecuted. Number three, persecutors undervalue the power and proclamation or the message of the gospel. Persecutors undervalue the power and proclamation of the gospel. Verse 20. We now get into the psyche of, of John. Remember the Holy Spirit is omniscient. And the Holy Spirit inspiring Mark gives us an insight into Herod's mind that is divinely informed. 
Verse 20. For Herod was afraid of John. Herod had him in prison, chained while in prison, guarded by guards while in prison, and he was still afraid. Why? Knowing that John was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. This is curious. He was convicted by him, disturbed by him, afraid of him, but something else. Look at the end of verse 20. When he, this Antipas, heard him, that is John the Baptist, when Herod heard John, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod was fascinated by John. He was also convicted by John, knowing that John was a righteous and holy man and that he was what? Not. This is odd, but he kept him safe, get this, from himself. He kept him safe from himself. He was the one who could and would eventually kill him. When he heard John preach, the, the, the text says he was perplexed. Aporeo in the Greek, interesting word. To be at a loss, perplexed, uncertain, inwardly disturbed, turbulent of soul, of soul is what the dictionary tells us. Turbulent of soul, stirred up. Still, the last phrase says he enjoyed listening to him. There was something he couldn't dismiss. Antipas was intrigued by the message of John. John preached the good news of God, the gospel, but the power and message, the power and proclamation was severely undervalued by Herod. He just enjoyed it, just enjoyed it. You know, I, I can't help but wonder if another collateral jewel on this crown of a passage is how many people just like hearing public speaking, they like hearing preaching, they turn it on Christian radio, they, they enjoy the speech, but they don't apply the message? That was Herod. I was, in, uh, I was a college pastor in Los Angeles for many years <coughs> to a group of college students. There was a young man from UCLA who was a visitor. He came for a few weeks and he finally asked to meet with me and, and um, uh, he was a, an unbeliever and we talked for a few minutes and, and it was clear that he just had questions. It was, it was stumped the pastor, curiosity of Bible trivia. And so after a while, I just said, why? It's obvious that you're not really interested. Why do you come? He says, oh, I just, I just like to hear you talk. Now, I'm not a very good talker. But it was disturbing to me. How can, you, how can you hear what we're talking about and walk away and say, that was a better way of spending my Sunday morning and, instead of sleeping in? It's possible to hear the word of God preached and appreciate it as oration, as argumentation, but not to apply the truth that's coming through it. Verse 21, strategic day, literally an important day, a, a, a very, very um, isolated day. And by the way, day here can expand into multiple weeks and you'll understand that in a moment. A strategic time came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet. Now stop right there. Who gives themselves a birthday party? Well, Herod does. For his lords, his military commanders, the leading men of Galilee, these were parties where you bragged, you showed off, you saw your wealth, uh, showed off your wealth, your opulence, the food you could bring in, the entertainment you could secure. These feasts would last for days, sometimes weeks. That's important because the prison, if this was in Tiberias, which we think it was, the prison where John the Baptist was, was not very near. Threw himself a party. Everyone who was important was, was invited. In verse 22, when the daughter of 
Herodias herself. Now, try to track with me here, okay? Philip and Herodias have a daughter named Salome. Salome was their daughter, Herodias' daughter, but she brings her over into the marriage with Herod Antipas. So this dancer, this um, uh, Salome, is uh, the daughter of Herodias from a different Herod, Herod Philip, but now the stepdaughter of Herod Antipas. You tracking? Okay, so we're dealing with a stepdaughter. When the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. As I said, her name was Salome. She was the daughter of Herodias and Herod Philip. I talked to my wife and I prayed long and hard about how to describe what's going on in the original language here to you. Um, and it's not easy in a mixed company. What makes this so creepy, what makes this so wicked is that Herodias is going to end up conspiring with her daughter as the daughter seduces her stepfather for the murder of an innocent, righteous man. Herod Antipas and his guests, by the way, the Greek says were pleased. That's a euphemistic verb. They were pleased by her dance. This was a sexually suggestive, provocative, erotic dance. D. Edmund Hebert says this. Let me quote him. Such solo dances were grossly suggestive representations of immorality comparable to a striptease act in a modern nightclub. They were regularly performed by professional entertainers of low moral character, and it was almost unprecedented for Salome to perform such a dance before Herod's guests. This should have caused rampant shame, and instead, it made all the guests pleased. Knowing what we know about these parties, that the Herod family and dynasty through, they were probably drunk. Herod then makes, me, makes a very rash, a very fast, a very public, foolish vow. Ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. That's how moved he was by this dance. Verse 23, he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now comes the conspiracy. Verse 24. She, <coughs> Salome, went out to her mother. She shows her the blank check. Herod had just written her a blank check. Fill in the amount. What do you want? Anything you want, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom, which is an interesting phrase because he didn't own property as the prefect of, of Galilee. He didn't have property to give away, but it shows you how baby drunk, how crazy he was. I'll do anything to get you anything because I'm pleased with you, my stepdaughter. So she goes out to her mother, verse 24. Now, you would expect the mother to say, what are you doing? That is so sinful. That's so wicked. That's immoral. I'm embarrassed. What should I ask for, mom? Verse 24, and the mom says, the head of John the Baptist now this tells you something about the mental state of Salome. She must have been embarrassed too because she uses this once in a lifetime lottery hitting proposition that he gives her to get anything she wants. And instead of getting anything she wants, she agrees with her mom to ask for the death of John. 
the head of John the Baptist. Mark's favorite word immediately, just then, and it's emphatic. She came, she ran in a hurry to the king and asked him saying, now we're gonna find out in a minute that this is in front of all the dinner guests. Everyone hears this. This was out and back, maybe not even uh, very far. She goes from the dance, everyone's intoxicated. They're overwhelmed by this dance that she's performed. She runs over to her mom. I can have anything I want. What should I get? They have this plan. She comes back saying, I want you to give me at once, immediately, during the banquet, the head of John the Baptist on a plate, on a platter. Now we see through the Holy Spirit's omniscience, verse 26, into Herod's mind, the king was very sorry. He was stuck. Because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. The idea is if this had just been the three of them, mom, daughter, and him, he would have said, nah, forget it. I'm changing my mind. He'd already made this public promise to fulfill her wishes. Then verse 27, it's just hard to read. Immediately the king sends an executioner, commanded him to bring back his head. So simple. And he went and had John beheaded in the prison. I just want you to imagine this scene. John is in a cave. We know where this cave is by tradition. It's named after the Greek word for sword, Machaira. John is alone. He's in a cave. He's chained. It's dark. He hears voices. He sees men come in. One carrying an axe. There's no trial. There's no appeal. They unchain him and have him bare his neck. Happened quick because verse 28 says they brought the head back on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl then gave it to her mother. This is grotesque, macabre, ruthless, disturbing. This is sick. By the way, in the fourth century, Jerome, by tradition, tells us that when Herodias received the head of John the Baptist, she took it into her private quarters, pulled the tongue out, and stabbed it repeatedly with a knitting needle. There's a strict contrast between verse 28 and 29. When John's disciples heard about this, they came and took away, you could insert this, his headless body, and they laid it in a tomb. Verse 29 is intended to mark a stark contrast in the way that John's disciples treated the body of John and the way these women acted with the head. came into the prison at great risk to themselves, probably with Herod's permission. He was guilt-ridden, obviously. It's not hard to imagine that he would have given them permission to take the body because of his guilt. And Mark finishes his flashback. Jesus would say of John that no one who ever lived was greater than him. Herod killed John and this act lit his conscience on fire. He'd been curious about John. Now he was curious about Jesus too, not just what Jesus taught, but wondering, has John the Baptist come back from the dead? Is is Jesus really John 2.0? Was he reincarnated in Jesus? 
There and then Herod wanted to meet Jesus. Turn over to Luke chapter 23. This is an important footnote in the story. <laughs> Luke 23. Verse 6. This is during the last week of Jesus' life. It just so happened that Herod, Antipas, was traveling to Jerusalem during the Passover that week when Jesus was on trial for his life. What a coincidence, right? Divine providence. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. This is dealing with Jesus in his trial. When he learned that he belonged to Herod Antipas' jurisdiction, he sent Jesus to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. The providence of God. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. Why? It wasn't John. It wasn't John raised from the dead. He'd wanted to see him for a long time. He'd been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. He questioned him at some length, probably turn this water into wine, heal my servant's uh, scabbed arm, anything, perform a sign. And Jesus stood there silent, staring into the face of a man who had beheaded his cousin and the greatest and last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. But he answered him nothing. The chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt, mocking him, they dressed Jesus in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Finally, Herod looks at the face of Jesus, notes that it's not John the Baptist, asks to be amused and trivialized by Jesus doing something miraculous, mocks him, mistreats him, dresses him in a royal robe and sends him back to Pilate. You know, you back up from the story and by the way, after this, we find out that the disciples came back and gave a report to Jesus about their mission. In verse 30. Why did Mark put this here at such great detail? More detail than, than Matthew and Luke. Why? In the middle of this sandwich of telling us sending is important, reporting is important in the middle, but don't don't be surprised if persecution comes. Isaiah, who Jesus quotes in Mark chapter four, says only one of 10 will repent. It's not a statistic about which ones repent. It's a statistic to say it's in the lower probability. Jesus is one of four soils. And now he says, they're not gonna like your message and they're not gonna like you. Do you understand? They didn't like Jesus. He's a lot more likable than you and me. If they kill Jesus, what are they going to do with us? He was perfect. How prepared are you for persecution and do you expect it? How bold are you about sin and righteousness? Let me ask some of you, is it possible that you sit here this morning curious superficially interested in Jesus, the church, the gospel preaching, but you've never bowed the knee to King Jesus. It's amusing to come to church, interesting to hear these stories, but you leave it in the pew and walk back to your life with no impact. That was Herod. And I pray to God it's not you. You can be freed from the guilt of your sin, 
forgiven of the sins that may be akin in a lesser or greater degree to Herod's? The mind, the body, you can be rescued from the promise that hell follows the life of those who reject the gospel. You can be free from this mor- free from your guilt this morning. Herod was weighted down with guilt his whole life because of what he had done. It's possible you're weighted down with the guilt of sinful choices and Jesus offers you to relieve yourself of that burden, to take his relationship, the yoke, to be bound together with him because this light, it's easy to bear. He forgives, he heals, he gives hope. Don't be a fool to say no to those gifts. If you're a believer, you better put your spiritual armor on. Be prepared for the persecution that is promised. Paul told Timothy, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Jesus said this is the greatest man who'd ever lived. Why would he say that? Consistent, bold, endured to the end. And this is for another time, even through his doubts. In that prison, he would send word to Jesus and say, you are the one, aren't you? I love that. That's so encouraging to me that he would say, I just want to make sure. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If Herod had responded correctly, he could have been won to heaven and won to the Savior. And instead, he rebuked, cajoled, persecuted, and turned over for death himself, the Lord Jesus. Let me encourage you to think deeply about these things. This is serious stuff. These are not just flannel graph stories. I never saw this one in the children's flannel graph um, uh, section. Father, please give us the insight that we need to see ourselves in the mirror of this passage. In Jesus' name, amen.